coming up on Philosophy Talk. What's the difference between thought and experience? This entire notion of oneself, what we are, is just this logical structure, a place to momentarily house all the abstractions. I see through my conscious experience to the world. Can I see my conscious experience itself? How do I make the experience itself into the object of my consciousness? If this is your first time hearing this, you are about to experience something so cold. Do we have to experience the experience to know about experience? There's the moment and then there's the awareness of trying to have the moment. And it's, it's all these layers. Our guest is Sean Gallagher, author of How the Body Shapes the Mind. The Phenomenology of Lived Experience, coming up on Philosophy Talk. What's it like to be an innocent civilian trapped in a war zone? Or maybe to have a voice like Luciano Pavarotti, or to view Earth from outer space. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. I'm here at the studios of KLW San Francisco. I'm alone today because my colleague and co-host John Perry is under the weather and away. And today... We're talking about the phenomenology of lived experience. I want to focus first on the lived experience part to get you an idea of what I'm talking about, and then briefly the phenomenology part. Lived experience. Think about the difference between reading a book about a war zone and actually being in one and experiencing that yourself. No matter how well written the book, reading the book can't possibly replicate the experience of being one. Now, the point I'm trying to make is that there are some things that only lived experience itself can possibly teach us nothing, not the testimony of others, not verbal or written instruction, not abstract philosophical thought, which I love, not even a rich imagination can fully substitute for lived experience. Now, lived experience is what phenomenology is all about. It's about what it and it alone can teach us both about the world because experience reveals or discloses the world to us and about consciousness itself. Uh, I want to get you to see what I mean. Think about this. Look at a cup, right? There are two things. There's the cup that you're looking at, and then there's your experience of looking at the cup. Now, the cup is something out there in the world. It's, the cup is not something in your mind. The experience is yours, and in some sense, yours alone. I mean, you and I can look at the same cup, I'm looking at the cup, you're looking at the cup. I'm looking at it from one angle, you're looking at it from another angle. Maybe I'm looking at it from above, you're looking at it from below. We have different experiences of the same cup. But phenomenology cares about the cup ultimately, but it really wants to bring, mostly I'm not looking at my experience of the cup, I'm having an experience of the cup, looking through the experience to the cup. That's a metaphor, looking through the experience to the cup. But that, I do something like that. So here's a question. How can I bring the experience itself, and not just the cup, but my experience of the cup to the fore, to the fore of my awareness? And why would I want to do that? Because I want to study consciousness. I want to make consciousness itself, not just 
the study of the world. Well, I don't want to. I want to present consciousness itself to consciousness. Now, now that's a lot to swallow. And my guests are going to help us sort through all that. We're going to talk about bracketing the world and all that stuff. But uh, to give you a feel for this topic, uh, it might be more familiar to you through what's called mindfulness studies. We sent our roving philosophical reporter. Liza Veal, out to study mindfulness and its relationship to phenomenology, she files this report. Phenomenologists and practitioners of mindfulness have this idea in common. Our experience of the world out there is mediated by having a body. And not just any old human body, but a particular body with a past conditioned by everything that's ever happened to it. In a way, our bodies remember the most important moments and all the things that happened when we weren't paying attention. They also remember the things we try to forget. I'm going to tell a story about a guy I'll call Mr. H to protect his privacy. Mr. H had waited five months and driven four hours to an appointment with a chronic pain specialist. When he got there and the receptionist told him there was no record of his appointment, he threatened to bomb the clinic. Just a few moments later, talking to a psychotherapist, Dr. Lynn Waldy, he could only remember fragments of what had just happened. The blackout was a symptom of severe PTSD, Waldy figured out. But the weird thing was that Mr. H's trauma, it had taken place decades ago. He'd been symptom-free for 20 years. Until now. And the episode at the clinic wasn't the only one. A few months earlier, he'd had his first flashback to his time in Vietnam. It was during a combat scene in a movie. When Mr. H came to on the floor of the theater, he was yelling for everyone to get down. Turns out, these episodes began occurring right after Mr. H had developed a chronic neck pain condition. Waldy determined that because he was an older adult and was experiencing this chronic pain, those pain sensations in his body themselves were a trauma trigger for him and actually were enough of a trigger to be responsible for an onset of PTSD from an event that had, a set of events that had happened decades earlier. Mr. H had managed to avoid thinking about his trauma for an extraordinarily long time, but he couldn't avoid his body. Waldy says avoidance is often what keeps people from recovering from trauma. You know, they may avoid it cognitively by not thinking about it. And sometimes people avoid things very deliberately. They may choose not to go places or talk to people who remind them. But that means it's hard to immediately recognize the memory that the feeling is associated with. It just feels like a feeling happening now. Because people avoid fully thinking about and working through the things that have happened to them in the past, that they haven't in some way put the past in the past. What extreme PTSD cases like this make clear to researchers is that we have many different kinds of memories. You remember where you parked your car, you remember the exact words someone used to break your heart. And then there's the memories you don't even know you have. The smell of someone you haven't seen in a long time, what it feels like to squint at the particular glare of a foggy San Francisco morning, the panic you felt when you thought your parents forgot to pick you up from school and you'd never see them again. And all of that is influencing how we react to the world, whether we realize it or not. This is where mindfulness comes in. When a person is moving through the world in a mindful way, they'll notice when certain sensations and reactions come up and then they can evaluate them. They can say, is that something I want to go with, right? Or is, can I realize and appreciate 
that I'm having a reaction right now and it has something to do not with the current situation but with something in my past and so I won't let that influence the way I act or react right now I'll just say oh yeah there I go again this person is wearing the same kind of glasses my old boss wore, so now I'm feeling uptight and bitter, for example. But it has no bearing on what's actually happening to me in the present. There are bombs in this movie, but I'm safe in the theater. That's the sense in which I think people say that to be mindful is to see the world more like it really is. Because only once you've bracketed the world can you distinguish between it and everything happening inside you, warping your perception. And whether or not perception can ever not be warped, that's a question for phenomenology. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Liza Beale.